So, Mark. Yes. There's something I need to know about you. Okay. You're out on the town. Partying hard. If you say so. Living the life of a young, vivacious person. Never happened, but continue. Put yourself in that headspace. <laughs> Use your imagination. And you stumble upon a homey little establishment. Serving you alcohols. Asking you to take a seat. And before you know it, somebody pulls out a little machine. Or better yet, a band. And they say, Mark... We want you to come up here and we'll play a song and we want you to sing along to it. We want you to do karaoke. Do you think karaoke bars use those little machines you see at house parties? I think it's possible that at least one of them does. They use like real screens and sound systems. I think it's possible that at least one of them does. If you say so. (laughs) Anyway, what is your go-to karaoke song? I've only done real karaoke once and I performed... My favorite song from when I was a four-year-old boy, Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. (laughs) That is an incredible choice. A fascinating choice. (laughs) I was really into that song as a four-year-old. And surprisingly, my parents weren't that surprised when I came out. (laughs) Did you do the karaoke as a four-year-old? I believe we did karaoke one year for... New Year's on one of those little machines, and I performed Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. So this is your go-to song. Apparently, this is now my go-to song. I always do Elvis. Because the thing is, for karaoke, you want to do a song that like people know, but maybe not the one that they would have thought to do. And Elvis works really well, because he hasn't been topping the charts lately. But there's a lot of fun stuff. Plus, like karaoke is all about putting on a show, and... Once you're singing an Elvis song and, like, kind of moving around, people map the Elvis dance moves onto you, so it's easier to seem decent. My go-to song is Burnin' Love, which rules, although one of the places I like to go for karaoke does not have it, so I do a lot of Jailhouse Rock, too. That is way too much thought. I just think it's my prerogative to have a little fun, and that's why I do karaoke. I was going to continue on with more lyrics to that song, and I drew a blank, and now I have no idea what any of the lyrics are. Oh, would you like me to sing the whole thing from memory? Because I could. It starts, let's go, girls. (laughs) Okay, what about you? What is your go to karaoke? Okay, so for the longest time, it was Semi Charmed Life. Because it's just a fun, upbeat song. Do, 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 do. Yes, that's the one. But recently, it's been more... I do enjoy a little Taylor Swift, our song. And uh, last January, I was in Nashville, and we found a little karaoke bar, which, frankly, if you're in Nashville, and you could go to any of the little bars on Broadway there, karaoke is an interesting choice because you're there surrounded by lots of actually very talented musicians. The trick is to do both, which is what I did in Nashville. That is also what I did too. But let me tell you, the karaoke was so much fun and you got to go up on stage and perform and I sang All Star and Mamma Mia and those were huge crowd pleasers and I think they're my new go-tos. My favorite karaoke experience, I was not the person performing, but... A friend of ours was doing karaoke one time on a cruise ship, and she opted in to sing Mamma Mia, and it turned out that not only was it the movie version of Mamma Mia that she was singing, but there was a dialogue break in the recording that they had, and she also did all the voices. Let's give her a shout out. Great job, Becca. It was incredible. I'm so glad that my version did not do that. 
I got to ride right through without any dialogue. I don't know what would have happened. <laughs> I don't know how I would have handled that situation. Wait, I just remembered on our last cruise, Mora and I went to karaoke and some girl went up there and they did not have the song that she wanted. And she proceeded to literally throw a tantrum on stage into the microphone while we all just sat there. So then she picked a backup song and spent all of the musical interludes monologuing about how much better it would be if they had had the song she originally wanted. What? This girl was over the age of 16 and far too old to be throwing this tantrum. And finally, the karaoke host gave her a little life lesson about how to be an adult. And people cheered afterwards. That's horrifying. It was uncomfortable and wonderful all at the same time. Yikes. Speaking of a movie with uncomfortable and wonderful (laughs) things. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast. We've already started out asking the questions. Karaoke, what was the deal with that girl? Do bars use the little machines? We're digging into it. And the most important question for us to answer is, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. Either way, we will dig in. We'll see what's there. It's our mission. We can't stop. We won't stop. And this week, we are welcoming back our most frequent guest for one of her favorite movies. Hashtag Fifi Fierce, my sister Fiona. Hi! So, Fiona. Yes. You and I, and especially you, Mm -hmm. have seen this week's movie a few times. Yes. Introduce it to us. Tell us what we need to know. Tell us why... You had to be here for this. So, like, the premise of the movie is this girl who has 27 dresses. Ah, there's the title. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. And she has supposedly been a bridesmaid in 27 weddings. Which we will discuss. And she has every single dress from every single wedding, even if it's an underwater wedding or a Gone with the Wind themed wedding, because apparently she's been in two of those, I believe. So there's that. I first saw this movie when I was in high school, which I think is when it came out. The film was released in 2008. So yes, I was in high school. And this movie, like, enlightened me to the wonder of James Marston. And let me tell you, I had to do a quick Google search just to make sure he's not problematic now. But No, he's good. He is good. He's a cowboy. And I love him. And this movie is where I came to know and love him. And I was obsessed with him after this. I think he's a good actor, and he's one of the hottest men I've ever seen. For some reason, I get a dumb vibe from James Marsden. But like a fun, not like intellectually dumb, but like a little clueless. I can't tell if it's only because I associate him so strongly with Criss Cross. Oh, I forgot about that. An incredible performance. Yeah, I really think he nailed it too well, where that is who he is in my head now. But it's also the kind of thing where like, James Marsden can show up in a thing and just nail this affability that is wonderful. I can't wait to see him with his beautiful blue sun come November. No, that got delayed till next year. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Because this this is what kept happening in my fantasy movie league on the internet, where you have to pick movies that will flop. I keep picking movies that then get delayed until 2020 because I had the new mutants. I had Artemis Fowl. They both got moved. Then I picked Sonic the Hedgehog and then that got delayed. I used to see movies just because James Marsden was in them, but I don't think I'm going to see Sonic just because he's in it. I probably will, just because it looks like a beautiful mess. Oh, it's going to be weird. I feel like Jim Carrey is tapping into something. (laughs) Jim Carrey is back on his, like, 90s grind, which he hasn't been in a long time. But, like, much weirder. Yeah, it's going to be one of his weirdest performances. And he looks nothing like Dr. Robotnik. He's got goggles. 
He has the mustache at points. So another kind of going back to the 27 dresses idea of this movie is the theme that all of these dresses you can shorten and wear again. And that is what every single bride has said to her. And one of my main questions was, this includes the woman who she, I believe she was Jewish and she was marrying someone who's who's Indian. Indian and they are all wearing saris. And she said they could shorten that. And I don't think that's what you do with a sari. I think that's the joke. Okay. Apparently this woman knows nothing about the culture she's marrying into. Okay. Okay. So if I were intelligent, I would have picked up on that. So 27 Dresses was directed by Ann Fletcher, who had previously directed Step Up. And before that had an extensive career working with Adam Shankman as a choreographer, including like Hairspray, where she first worked with James Marsden. She choreographed Titanic, which we've already covered on the show, and we'll actually be discussing her again in a couple of weeks when we get to her follow-up feature, The Proposal. A movie I have not seen yet. No, it's... Fiona, what do you think of The Proposal? I like The Proposal. It's kind of crazy and weird, but I enjoy watching it. I mean, that's our bread and butter. Yeah. (laughs) In addition to being directed by Fletcher, this movie was written by Aileen Brosh McKenna, who was coming off a hit so big they put her name on the poster. She had previously written The Devil Wears Prada. Oh, that's a great one. That is a terrific movie that we will never cover. Why not? Because the romance in that movie is much thinner than you remember. No, I know it's not really It's also just been so over-dissected. That is true. And like an episode on The Devil Wears Prada by us would be us focusing on the least interesting part of that movie. So instead, just go watch it and enjoy it for yourself. Yeah. So, folks, you can stop recommending The Devil Wears Prada to us. Possibly <laughs> our most recommended movie. Oh, my gosh. Aileen Brosh McKenna is now, or I guess was recently, the co-creator slash showrunner of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That's right, on the CW. Yeah. And she had originally written this partially as a deconstruction of some rom-com things like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend became The idea in the original screenplay was that Jane would end up alone, just self-actualizing, figuring out her life and who she was without a man. But she first pitched this script in, like, 2002, the height of the rom-com boom, and the studios were pushing for more traditional beats. She actually left the project for a while and then came back after Devil Wears Prada's success and became the on-set writer, working on new pages and things like that. They insisted on Jane ending up with a guy, but... She developed sort of a hybrid screenplay that kept a lot of the sister stuff that she was more focused on and merging it into the stuff the studio wanted. I really did enjoy how this movie calls out how toxic it is, the trope of pretending to like something to convince someone to fall in love with you. Yes, it's very bad. Oh, yeah. It shows up as something kind of cute in a lot of movies, but in this it is shown to be the horrible decision that it truly is. I feel like I'm going to want to talk a lot about Tess, who is outrageously awful. Let's talk about her now, because I don't have her much in the points. So in the movie, Malin Ackerman plays the sister of Katherine Heigl. Okay. We will get to Katherine Heigl. Yes. But right now we're talking about Malin Ackerman, who She's plays She's also Tess. in The Proposal. That's right. She's playing the same character she plays in the film Rampage. I forgot she was in Rampage. She is good in Rampage. She is just as evil in this as she is in the movie where she, like, uses CRISPR to turn gorillas and other animals into giant monsters. Which was a great plan. It worked. I have two questions about Tess. Until she got eaten. (laughs) Yeah. Two questions about Tess. Does she actually want to marry George or does she just want to get married? Question number one. She wants to marry a rich person in New York. Because she lost her job. Okay. Is the vibe I was getting. I am going to pull in part in this episode from some recent writing by Caroline Side, who writes a column on rom-coms for the AV Club. I've 
mentioned it before. And she has a really good piece on 27 Dresses. And one of the points she made that I had missed was the conversation towards the beginning of the movie where Tess looking at the photos of their parents' wedding talks about like, oh yeah, like mom was my age when she got married. And like, this is clearly on her mind. She wants to get married. She's looking for it. Okay. And then George is a dummy. Yeah, he is an idiot. Okay, my question number two. Are we supposed to believe that George and Tess reconnect at the end there? I think it's supposed to be a situation of like, look, she's grown and they'll give it a second shot. So they do reconnect. I don't necessarily think so. So when she smiles at him walking down the aisle, is that not like a connection, a bond that they're making? I would say it's possible, but we're not meant to assume that it definitely happens. Okay. Do we want to talk about the fact that Tess is textually racist? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah. It is rough going. When she meets George, his little brother through the YMCA, this kid Pedro, she leans down and basically shouts, hola, Pedro, in his face. It's really uncomfortable. And then she makes him clean her apartment and then helps him start a cleaning business. Which, it's like, this kid is trying to become an entrepreneur. Good for him. So good. Good for him. And he's entering a market that he already has a foothold in. Good for him. It's her secretiveness about it. It's like, it's kind of weird of George to not encourage this kid to like, try and make money on the side and, uh very legitimate way so that part's cool the problem is the like Tess secretly doing this stuff yeah but the only reason she's doing it secretly is because george has already told pedro he can't do this so i don't really get where george is coming from on this position is george trying to help him i think george is something else i think george is a classist who is trying to convince pedro that the entirely legitimate line of work like cleaning is beneath him yeah and i didn't care for that either yeah let's talk some more about tess who is in addition to being a racist also a liar where she very swiftly after meeting george goes deep on her dead dog claiming to have loved it she hated it can't get the name right tori she claims to be a vegetarian. She claims to love hiking. Oh, when she says she loves the outdoors, she loves yachts and flowers. Yes, indeed. The two things. Yes. And she is super manipulative and terrible. She also is rude. She answered a phone call from George during family breakfast. And instead of saying, hey, let me call you back. We're having breakfast. She goes in another room and starts giggling on the and bed like, on, the back on the phone. Yeah. Like, hang up the phone and eat your stupid pancakes. Like, what time is it? Like nine o'clock in the morning? Yeah. This is on the, like, weird transition period between flip phones and iPhones, where phones are starting to become, like, a brick again, but they're not smartphones, so they look really weird. And I always enjoy movies in this period. So the iPhone was actually originally released during production for this movie. Entertainment Weekly hosted a 10-year reunion with the central cast last year, and... You can find a write-up of it on EW, or you can find some video of them chatting and drinking on YouTube. And James Marsden was talking about how he got a friend to stand in line at the Apple store to buy him an original iPhone because he was on set shooting. Oh my gosh. What a good friend. Yeah. Well, if your friend is James Marsden, I would go stand in line to buy an iPhone for James Marsden. I mean, I assume that the friend was probably also trying to buy one for himself. Presumably. Would be my idea. Probably. So, as we said, this movie's directed by Anne Fletcher. It's written by Aileen Brush McKenna. McKenna actually got the idea from a real-life friend of hers who had been a bridesmaid in 12 different weddings. And McKenna was like, that's kind of crazy. And that's the thing that just thinking about this movie. So Katherine Heigl's character, Jane, has 27 bridesmaid dresses, which means that 
She has 27 people to whom she is close enough that they want her to be in their wedding. My question is... Is she actually that close or do they pick her because they know A, that she'll say yes and B, that she's good at it and she logistically will get what they need done? I because think I that's was possible. kind of surprised that the secretary at her office Played had by her Kristen as a bridesmaid and they obviously didn't seem to be that close. Yeah. I think that's entirely possible. Yeah. I think this movie posits a world where you choose bridesmaids in a very different way because also her sister chooses Judy Greer. Because she's thin. Yeah. Because Melinda Ackerman is very shallow in this movie. Yeah. She calls her the rude one. I mean, she's not wrong. Not wrong. She's not. <laughs> Perennial best friend Judy Greer. Yeah. Who by this point had already been in What Women Want, The Wedding Planner, and 13 Going on 30. Oh my god. Has she been in her most iconic performance as Kitty yet? Yes, that's already happened. Oh, okay. And it- this one, she's the bonus, not just the best friend, but also an open alcoholic to the point where when they're at the engagement party and George asks Jane if he can get her a drink, he turns to the rude one. Judy I'm, Greer. Yeah, Judy Greer and says, can I get you a hair of the dog? So he is aware that she's just drunk. It seems like she still does her job well. She, apparently she hasn't been fired yet. This movie's supporting cast is weirdly stacked because also in this we've got Melora Hardin as James Marsden boss. You mean Jan Levinson? Yeah, she is playing Jan Levinson. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. He also works with Malik Pancholi. Oh, yeah. Jonathan. Great. Right. We've got Kristen Ritter working in Jane's office. Yeah. It was a movie where Nick and I, as people were showing up, we were just like, oh, that person. Oh, yeah. that person. And they all show up within like 10 minutes of each other for the first time. Yeah. It introduces them early. Kristen Ritter does not get enough use. Sure, but they could have done more with her. It's really Breaking Bad that's a big breakout for her. And that hasn't happened yet. And that gets her Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, which which gets gets her Jessica Jessica Jones. Jones. So the movie opened on Martin Luther King weekend, January 18th, 2008. It made $27 million over the three-day weekend and came in second place overall behind the opening weekend of Cloverfield to give you some more 2008 flashbacks. And ultimately grossed $76 million at the North American box office. Solid hit. Solid hit. Weirdly, though, the movie has this reputation as being like the signal flare of the end of the age of rom-coms. Huh. Where Katherine Heigl and 27 Dresses together often shoulder the blame in some circles as like the genre had ceased to have anything interesting to say and become fairly rote and by the numbers. And I think a lot of that has to do with where Katherine Heigl who is our star in this movie, stood in the cultural conversation in the winter and especially summer of 2008. Is it Grey's Anatomy stuff? Because that's, I know she was on that. It's Grey's Anatomy and Knocked Up. And it all converges Mm. right around the release of this movie. So I'm going to throw a lot at you right now. But I think it's important for understanding the cultural context that 27 Dresses sits in. To the point that that Caroline side piece I mentioned earlier was titled 27 Dresses Doesn't Deserve Your Hate and Neither Does Katherine Heigl. Good, because I love this movie. So you may not know this, like, that is the reputation of this movie in a lot of cultural and film circles. Okay, bunch of snobs. We've seen a lot worse. Oh, much worse. Than this. So the movie comes out, as I said, in January 2008. And on January 1st, Vanity Fair comes out, as it does on the first of every month, and featured a profile of Katherine Heigl. And in that interview... Heigl talked about how women often tend to be people pleasers, tend to struggle to voice discomfort, tend to struggle to voice things that they don't like about a situation. And she was making an effort to be vocal about what she wanted and stuff that was making her unhappy. 
this is interesting. It kind of reflects uh, some of the struggles that Jane is going through in the movie, where she has a hard time telling people no. But I want you to keep that in mind, this attitude that Heigl is, says she's trying to embody as we look at like her year in 2007-2008. So in February 2007, she's in contract renegotiations with Grey's Anatomy going into the fourth season, and she suspends her contract negotiations because she felt she should be paid on the same level as the show's leads. Because she was like, I'm a major character, I'm really popular, I feel like I should be paid what I deserve. This was very controversial. And her thinking that she should be paid on the same level as like the titular character was somewhat controversial. That summer, she's the female lead in Knocked Up, which is a huge hit. It makes $148 million, like double what 27 Dresses did the next year. It established the Seth Rogen, Judd Apatow brand in the popular consciousness. And during production, Grey's Anatomy actually moved their filming to Rhode Island so that Heigl could do both at the same time. During that period, she did an interview on David Letterman where she complained about 17-hour workdays, which is fair. That's pretty brutal. But did she choose that? Kind of, when she chose to do the movie. Yeah. That fall, she wins the Emmy for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama for Grey's Anatomy. So that's great. That's really exciting. Then in January, we have this Vanity Fair profile before the release of 27 Dresses. And in this profile, for starters, she criticizes Grey's Anatomy in its fourth season. She won an Emmy for season three. Season four, she complains about a story arc where her character, who had previously been very altruistic, started an affair with her married friend and didn't seem to feel bad about doing this. She was like, this seems like a values shift that's not being addressed. She called it a ratings ploy, complained that the business side of things was driving the creative side, and said, quote, it's our fourth season. There's not a lot of spontaneity left. (laughs) A funny thing to keep in mind as Grey's Anatomy enters what I believe is its 34th season. Yeah, I can't believe it's still on the air. Also in this Vanity Fair interview, she calls Knocked Up sexist for portraying women as killjoys while male immaturity is romanticized. She said, quote, 98% of the time it was an amazing experience, but it was hard for me to love the movie. These two things together, the contract negotiations that she suspended over pay and the criticisms of Grey's and Knocked Up, Get Catherine Heigl saddled with the eternal banner of difficult. You can't hear it, but I'm rolling my eyes very broadly. (laughs) That summer, she does not submit herself for Emmy consideration for the fourth season of Grey's Anatomy. When journalists call her up to ask why not, she says that the material she was given, the work that she did, were not worthy of Emmy consideration. All right, then. This, as you can imagine, did not go over well among the creatives behind Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. Heigl later said that she went to therapy for the first time after the firestorm that started with this, and it made her reluctant to complain about other things for a while because of the tremendous backlash she got, to the point that she wore shoes that were too small for an entire movie because she didn't want to lean into her reputation as someone who complained. Oh my gosh. In 2014, Shonda Rhimes talked about how great Scandal was by saying, quote, there are no Heigls in this situation. Yikes. Uh, ouch. In July 2009, Seth Rogen and Judd Apatow are promoting funny people on The Howard Stern Show. And Stern asks them about Katherine Heigl. And Apatow tries to be magnanimous. He's like, look, press junkets are really exhausting. You're talking to people all day, saying the same things over and over again. Maybe she, like, slipped up and said something she didn't really mean. Seth Rogen jumps in and is like, I was doing those junkets too, and I didn't say anything like that. And then he says of The Ugly Truth, a bad movie that was about to come out. That looks like it really puts woman on a pedestal in a really beautiful way. This is interesting. By 2010, Vulture did a story debating Heigl's place in the culture. Allegedly, at that point, she's one of the only female actors, along with Julia Roberts, Sandra Bullock, Angelina Jolie, and Reese Witherspoon, who could get a project greenlit just by signing on. 
Also, allegedly, she was trying to develop Blended, which later became an Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore movie, but couldn't get it made because none of her old male co-stars wanted to work with her again. She was also apparently pricing her way out of competition. She asked for $3 million for a small role in Valentine's Day and got turned down, and then Julia Roberts was given $3 million for the same part. Since then, she has mostly been working in television, which today is not the demotion that it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. But nonetheless, Katherine Heigl still has this kind of dicey reputation. And in interviews in the last couple of years, has talked about how she's tried to frame herself differently from that. And she's like, the best thing I can do is just when I work with you, you have a positive relationship with me and things go well. So I'm just trying to do that. Yeah, yeah. But so there is like a lot of baggage around Katherine Heigl and this movie because all of this comes up during the press tour. And the fallout from that Vanity Fair piece. Rough. Hollywood sexism is horrifying. Yeah. And you get how, like, it's a weird situation, too, where, like, people probably were genuinely frustrated by some of the comments. Yeah. Sure. But also... But also, some of them may have been valid, too. Sure. And you can also see how male actors may have had a much easier time weathering this kind of thing. Yeah. I feel like if she were to speak up for herself in terms of getting a pay raise today, it would have been a much less big deal than it was back then. Because I feel like that's the thing that really sticks out in my head is she was difficult in money negotiation. That's the thing I remember most. I know when I, I mean, this is, we're going into like really anecdotal territory today. When I hear it come up, most of the times, people are talking about the Grey's Anatomy and knocked up criticisms. Yeah. Also, Judd Apatow handled it as you should, honestly. Yes. I wonder how Katherine Heigl and Seth Rogen's relationship is to this day. Yeah. I don't think they interact much. Probably not. But I wonder if he's come to see... Because he has kind of moved more away from the, like, man-child thing. Sure, he's a very thoughtful part of the cultural discourse. So I'm just wondering how he feels about the movie. Like, because I think you could stand by it and also understand where she's coming from at this point. Yeah. That said, I will agree with him. The Ugly Truth is a bad movie. Yeah. I didn't enjoy that it. Too. <laughs> so uh, that said, 27 Dresses is interesting because it is rare in the rom-com genre in that it is written, directed, and stars a woman. And the production of this movie was apparently pretty pleasant, and a lot of people have pretty positive memories of it it's also entertaining yeah oh yeah it's not my favorite sorry fiona that's okay that's okay but it's definitely nowhere near the bottom of our list oh, not even a i mean bit. i don't think i would say this is my number one movie of all times but oh, it's uh, definitely yeah. like high on my list is it in competition for your most watched movie uh probably what is your most watched movie it's gotta be princess diaries Absolutely. Like, I don't think there's any movie I've seen as many times as I've seen Princess Diaries. All right. Well, with that ringing endorsement from Fifi Fierce, should we move on into the romance of 27 Dresses? Let's do it. So every week on We Love the Love, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points that help us dig into what's going on. We ignore everything else, except for when we don't, and just focus on the romance. So Fiona, as our guest on this episode, you will be in charge of guiding us through the astonishingly extensive notes that you have written for each of these points. There is so much. I started off with 12 points and tried to combine them down to get five, okay? 12? Yes! All right. So we start off with the meet cute, as any good romance does. I loved your thong, by the way. You buzzed past me earlier. I saw you changing gowns. You were in two weddings in one night, weren't you? It's a little upsetting, don't you think? Well, they're both really, really good friends of mine, and their weddings happen to be on the same night, so what was I supposed to do? 
So Jane is at one of her 27 weddings that she's in. Two on the same night. Two on the same night. And it's the bouquet toss. And Jane is about to catch the bouquet. And she gets knocked out by some crazy person who like literally body slams her. I do have to say in regards to the amount of weddings she's in, I am shocked how few of her friends overlap. Yeah. With this many weddings yeah. and having two on the same night, you think she would have a friend circle that included more than one person out of a bunch of different friend circles. Yeah, absolutely. Also, like, sometimes, and I know that this is something that they talk about later, but, like, sometimes you have to say no. This is absurd. So she gets- Oh, speaking of, at the very beginning of the movie, we see her, like, at a wedding as a young kid, and she's like, and I learned that I just loved weddings. Also, she's wearing a white dress- at that wedding. It's weird. Yeah. But then the movie does like this fake where when it cuts to the present, she's wearing a wedding dress and they're fitting it. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, so the movie is her getting married. And then we learn, nope, she's getting fitted for her friend's wedding dress for her friend. And we hear on the phone like, oh, yeah, it's so great. We're the same size. If it's one of those two weddings, she is not the same size no, as those women. she is not. But that is definitely one of those weddings. Also, who the heck, regardless of who you're sending to actually try on the dress to get it hemmed, why would you wait until the last day to have this happen? What was going on with this wedding? One thing I want to acknowledge about this movie, Mark and I are experts in wedding dresses. We have oh, commented tell. extensively on a number of wedding dresses. Famously, the maid of honor wedding dress is the worst one we've seen by a good deal. All the wedding dresses in this movie are good. Yeah, even the Tess wedding dress. Oh, I really also like that a good dress. One. Is really good. It's just bad that she actually chopped up her mother's wedding dress when after, she knew her sister wanted and it. And after saying, "Oh, you can wear it after me." Yeah, because like in a vacuum, that's actually like kind of a cool idea. Yeah. Except for that she had already had that conversation with Jane. Yeah, it's a little selfish and rude. Okay, so anyway, All right. she gets hit in the head while she, reaching for the bouquet. Right. She so, was, like, really excited. She was going for it. Yeah, she was about to, like, finally get her wish, but she didn't. So, so wishes don't come true. No, they don't. So she wakes up to Kevin leaning over her. Kevin, a.k.a. James Morrison. That's right. Beautiful man. He, so he's basically been watching her all night because he has realized that she's been going back and forth between two weddings. And he, he helps her out of this wedding because she's clearly, like, concussed. Right, so he helps her out of the uh, the hotel. He gets her a cab. They are. He tells her he loved her thong. Exactly, which is the most uncomfortable way to bring up the fact that you're aware that they were at two weddings. Very inappropriate. There were so many other things he could have said, and instead he says, "I liked your thong." Mark, by the way, I liked your thong too. Oh, thank you, Will. I saw you getting dressed in the back of a cab. I was recording two podcasts at once. Oh, understandable. I had to keep changing my dress between the two recordings. Yeah, you cannot wear the same dress. I would have podcasts. been embarrassed if you hadn't. Uh, so in, after that conversation, they're in the cab and they're talking about weddings and love and he really hates it all. Yeah, he says that he was impressed that she could stand attending two weddings because like, gosh, how could you put up with all that nonsense twice? Right. He also, in this conversation, tells her that he is a writer. He doesn't really give any more details besides that. She doesn't ask. But you can tell that he is already smitten. He is in love with Jane. He's having a good time, at least. Yeah. I was thinking while watching this in this moment, I was going to knock a few believability points off because it is James Marston and she didn't immediately jump his bones when she was presented with the opportunity. So clearly it's losing at least a point on the scale. He's such a handsome boy. And, And just like adorable. Like just his whole persona. Come on, Jane. This is why his treatment in the X-Men franchise is so infuriating. Have you watched Westworld? No. He's a cowboy. 
Oh, that's pretty cool. He's a hot cowboy. All right, adding hot it. Hot cowboy robot. I'll add that to my list of 35 TV shows that I'm trying to watch at some point in my and life. And then X-Men takes him and casts him as someone who should have been one of the leads of that movie. And then ultimately kills him off screen because they realized they did so little with him that people wouldn't care. Rude. Yeah. Rude is all I have to say. All right, anyway. So she gets out of the cab and he finds that her file of facts has been left in the cab. Ooh. And she's got all this information about upcoming weddings, which means, and this is my central issue, the fact that there are extensive plans for future weddings, including multiple future weddings on her Saturdays. Yeah. Either she is not in any of those weddings. That's option one. Two. She is in those weddings before he comes over and sees the dress closet, and we are not shown those weddings. Or three, there should be more than 27 dresses. Maybe she has all of the upcoming wedding bridesmaids dresses in her real closet, and that's just the worn ones. What if she, like, no, that would be too ridiculous. There should be more than 27 dresses. I was gonna say, what if she agreed to be in them and then said no once Tess got engaged? But she wouldn't say no. She would go right, to three weddings point. in She one would day. figure out how to go to those yeah. weddings. Okay, so that's not the case. I don't so have an answer believability for down. There yeah. should be more dresses. So we lost the points for not falling in love with James Marsden right away. And we lost points for the dress numbers. Yeah. Okay. So he finds the file of facts and he starts to tell the cab to stop. And then he decides, nope, just keep driving. He realizes how many weddings she's in. He's very intrigued. And then he... We have not said this. His job is to write well, for the style section. We don't know we that. We don't actually yet. know that at this point, Will. Not yet. Okay. So now that he has a way to contact her, he starts sending her flowers and leaving memos to ask her out on dates. But this is all pretty complicated because Jane is in love with George, her boss. Played which, by Edward Burns. Yes. Who, who is, is a thumb of a man. Big. He is a handsome thumb. Yeah, pretty much. He has the most forgettable face his voice is very unforgettable, though. Yeah. But his face, yeah, pretty forgettable. And I just... He looks like he's in the background of an animated movie. I just remember like they didn't watching bother this to fully animate him. with friends and being like, why are people into him in this movie? Why is Tess all over him? Why is Jane all over him? When you have James Marston in the picture. he's rich. Okay. <laughs> so Jane then... So... <laughs> I thought only you know where we are (laughs) I know I know so so we're at this point where Kevin is pestering her with dates he sends her flowers by this point has he sent her her like memo book back well so they meet up at her co-workers engagement party Kristen Ritter yes and he brings the engagement book to her at that party and that's where she finds out that he is the one who sent the flowers and not George as she had previously thought and she thought it was him when he said is that thing I put on your desk okay and she should have known that wasn't him because the flowers do not arrive on her desk Kristen Ritter brings them to her from reception exactly so she is very upset she is literally about to go thank George for the flowers and tell him how she feels when Tess walks in and Tess and George literally lock eyes. It looks like George is freaking entranced. He's like under a spell as he's walking towards her. And after that night, they start dating and it's like a whirlwind romance. That day, we were told that Malin Ackerman arrived in town for two weeks. Yes. We are never told that that timeline is extended. Right. I think we are told that she's staying longer after she starts dating George. Yes, she says, she does say, oh, I don't know how long I'm staying at this point. During the breakfast. Yes. Right. 
So this is then when Jane gets her date book back from Kevin, James Marston, and she opens it and an entire page is ripped out because he wants to teach her how to live a less scheduled life. He has also written his name and phone number throughout the book. On every single day, basically. Every week, she's got a date with him. And his point is, my date is making up to you the fact that I tore a page out of your book. Yeah, he says that he tore the week out, quote, to see how you do without every minute of your life planned out. Which, not not a bad idea, but he forced A jerk move from a stranger. Yes. I would forgive him because of his face. Because he's James Watson. But if anyone else tried this bullshit on me, it would not go well. If someone deleted a week of my G-Cal, I would be furious. Uh, yeah. If someone replaced all of my G-Cal events with their name, I would also be furious. I would never speak to them again. Yeah. But... Frankly, if even if Marston they were James Marsden, I nope, would be done. Nope. nope. I, I would find it in my heart to forgive him. <laughs> I could forgive him. I would reach deep down into my heart <laughs> I could and forgive, find that spot. <laughs> I could forgive that man a lot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So does that take us to point number two? That does take us to point two. We're going to play this game. Come on. Humor me. All right, Jane, give me 50 bucks. No. Jane, it's 50 bucks. I'll pay you back. No. Jane, I need you... To give me 50 bucks. No. Yeah, I said. Have your drink? Sure. No. Oh, no. So by now, like, Jane has really still been avoiding James Marston. She's like, you're a weirdo. Leave me alone. Right. Stop harassing me. Yeah, pretty much. You don't care about weddings, and I love weddings. I'm going to lounge back at home and read these old columns by Malcolm Doyle. My favorite wedding writer. Yay. So, oh, real quick, there are two... Jane moods in that like that first era of time that I really liked was her eating french fries at the baseball game just the way she looked and then also her shoving pancakes in her mouth because I do love a good pancake okay so now we're at point two and this is after George and Tess have been dating for who knows how long maybe a day maybe a week really unclear and Jane realizes that George has left work and he has left his wallet there. So she goes, she looks at his very planned out schedule that she's probably planned out for him. 100%. And she goes to the address where she knows he will be and walks in on his proposal to Tess. And it is incredibly awkward. They have been dating at most a couple of weeks. (sighs) Like three maximum? Maybe. So, okay. So that happens and she is triggered by this. So she finally agrees to meet up with Kevin and get a drink with him. Yes, Which is, I believe the drink is the operative part. Yes, but she could have gone by herself. Sure. Instead, she calls up Kevin and gets a drink with Kevin. Yeah. So at is this, this when he teaches her to say no? Yes, it is. So she's going on about how it'll be really annoying to have Tess be the bride because she'll just have a lot of needs and have a lot of demands for Jane. And Kevin says, okay, well, let's teach you how to say no. And it's really kind of cute watching them practice her saying no uh and he asks for her a drink or no he asks for fifty dollars and she says no 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 and she does a great job until he says can i have your drink and she distractedly says yes and she fails yeah she just goes oh yeah sure and he starts drinking it and then she goes oh wait a minute i thought that was actually really well done Uh, yeah i liked that a lot by the way we skipped this in my notes before he goes to his proposal george has jane tie his tie for him and i just thought we should acknowledge this dumb man Yes. Also, he makes the comment about the benefit dinner where he says, I guess I need a date for that. And he goes, at least that's one thing you don't have to take care of for me. 
Which... And then she does. Although, I don't think she goes. No, she doesn't. Like, yeah. She doesn't. She agrees to and then doesn't. But anyway, so they have this. And then meanwhile, Kevin, still intrigued by all the bridesmaid events, decides he wants to write an article about this woman who is always a bridesmaid. And so, so we actually do know that Kevin, Jane doesn't, but we know that Kevin writes about this know. stuff. Because we've seen Melora Hardin and him argue. Sorry, who? His boss. Jan Levinson. So he wants to write, like, investigative pieces into the wedding industrial complex. Yeah, he doesn't want to write about people's weddings on a weekly basis anymore. He wants to write about, like, price gouging in the wedding industry. Which is a very valid argument. Yeah, and she's like, "Mm, no, write about weddings. And he's pretty good at it. Yeah, Jane loves his writing. Supposedly, well, we don't know that yet, but supposedly he's pretty good. I mean, it's, like, pretty obvious that he's the writer. Anyways. He's the wedding writer, and she loves this other wedding writer. (laughs) Okay. Writers use fake names. It's not a surprise. Let's continue on. So he wants to write an article and he shows up to the cake. It's not really the tasting, but like the cake acquiring for Tess and George's wedding. And that's when Jane discovers that he is Malcolm Doyle, her favorite wedding writer. Right. And this was all just a ploy. He had reached out to Tess about writing about them, and it was all just a ploy so he could get that access to Jane so he could write about her as a bridesmaid. And she is furious when she discovers this because he doesn't care about weddings, which means that all that Malcolm Doyle flowery writing was just somebody churning out crap they don't believe in. As she puts it, I feel like I just learned my favorite love song was written about a sandwich. And I would like to say, there should be more love songs about sandwiches. (laughs) Direct quote from my notes. I feel like my favorite love song was actually written about a sandwich at Will's real fave love song. (laughs) This is true. uh, Because there is nothing greater on this planet than a good sandwich. It is the pinnacle of culinary excellence, and I will brook no criticism of them. I don't feel as strongly towards sandwiches, but I'm happy that you have found love. Only 30 Rock does. Yeah. That's in my profile description on Twitter. I believe all anyone wants is to sit in peace and eat a sandwich. All right. I mean, that doesn't sound bad, but let me keep going. So then, Tess is surprised that Jane and Malcolm, a.k.a. Kevin, a.k.a. James Marsden, already know each other. And he has a great line where he says, we both work the wedding circuit. That killed me. Uh, So then, under the guise of learning more about Tess, Kevin goes over to Jane's apartment. He's going to talk about the article. And he discovers the bridesmaid dresses. And this is when they have their whole montage of her trying on the different dresses. Which is pretty fun. It's fun. And they seem to bond and have a great time doing it. And we cut from the dresses to images of the wedding that's going on. Yes. Anybody got a favorite wedding? Uh, the horse one where her horse won't turn around and face the right way was good. Underwater was a lot. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Because you can't say any words underwater. So it feels like a really bad place to have a wedding. Indeed. Yeah. And his point is that all of these dresses are hideous and they're just a way that the brides use to make the bridesmaids look ugly. And I, I appreciate the textual acknowledgement that she lives in Manhattan and cannot have room for that closet. Also that, yeah. Seriously, she could put so much stuff in that closet. So then they're talking and she starts to actually open up about her own love life. And while she's talking, he takes a picture, ruins the mood. But they continue to hang out around the preparation for Tessa's wedding. Right. So they end up making the registry, which is where he then opens up to her. And we find out why he hates weddings. His wife left him for his college roommate. But another sign that he's a great dude, besides the whole like tearing out the notebook thing, which isn't okay, but he corrects her douchey pronunciation of vase. Yeah, that is true. And then they go and register tests for all the ugly things in the store. That is the 
only mention of his past marriage. I had forgotten that that line was uttered until Fiona just mentioned it. Yeah, really? Because we don't need the explanation. He can just not like weddings. That's true, but this makes him seem more sensitive. Because he once liked weddings. Right, and he's hurt. Wow. Poor James Marston. Who hurt him? He needs to be comforted, Mark. Okay, so that's the end of point two. A very long point two. But it's all, it's their bond. The point point two two is them bonding over Tessa's wedding. Okay, point three. Okay. Great song. Exactly the words. Sorry, lyric police. What are the words? You're gonna hairy hands and music so the walrus sounds. Walrus sounds? So, Kevin has now realized that he actually really likes Jane. And she's not just the object of this article he's writing. In Which fact, is a bummer for him because she is a little bit upset about the fact that his articles are lies. Yes. And so he decides he is not going to write this article. He goes to Jan Levinson. He asks if he could not write this article. But she reads the draft and is actually really into it. So he tries to contact Jane to warn her about the article finds out that she is at the food tasting and he shows up and this is when he sees Jane and George at the food tasting and Jane is just fawning over George and Tess this is, is not when, here. Yeah, Tess is not there because she has a hair appointment and this is when Kevin realizes that Jane is in love with George. Which is exacerbating her existing issue which is that she wants to do whatever people need like she cannot say no to people and this is made doubly an issue when it's the impending wedding of her sister, to whom she feels great obligation, and her object of affection, for whom she will do anything. Oh, and in this time, we discover that they get three weeks to plan this whole wedding. Yes. This extravagant wedding. So that this relationship will have been maybe, what, six weeks? Which yeah. means that max. Yeah. It is shorter than the relationship between Dennis Quaid and Meredith in The Parent Trap. It's like oh, half as long. You're right. Wow. All right, so... Again, part of this whole event, George has to leave. So Kevin and Jane get stuck going to look at linens, I believe it is. At some like antique store upstate. Way far away. So they're driving Which, frankly, Jane, if you're going to learn to say no, that's where you should say no. Yeah. Don't drive up there. No, that's too much. So they're driving back. It's pouring rain. They hydroplane because she's not paying attention because they're screaming at each other in the car while he's revealing that he's onto her and her big secret. And the car gets stuck. So they walk to this bar. The payphone is broken. So they're not going to get a tow truck that night. Kevin decides- James Marston's friend is still waiting to get the iPhone. So they don't have that yet. Right, right. Kevin decides- He's going to have a drink. So a valid choice. They sit down at the bar and they start taking shots. And then they start really chatting about weddings and stuff. But everyone in the bar is like watching them, like acknowledging that the guy next to them gives them a look when they take one of the shots, which is just entertaining. And then this is when she asks Kevin what his favorite part of weddings are. And he says is that when the bride starts coming down the aisle, he looks at the groom to look at the groom's face. And that is also her favorite part of the wedding. So that's a huge bonding point for her since weddings are her life, basically. She also lets slip that she thinks he's sexy and they sing Benny and the Jets together. She gets up on the bar. He also gets up on the bar. It is a very intense sing-along, a very passionate sing-along, but they do not know the words. No, they do not. But they do get the rest of the bar to join in. That's right. This was a thing that was in the first draft of that screenplay that Aline Brush McKenna was originally trying to get made. And she fought... Not just to include this, but at one point, 
once she had come back to the project and it was underway, she found out that they were talking about changing out the song for something that had kind of a faster rhythm to keep momentum going. They're like, Benny and the Jets kind of slow. It doesn't bring as much energy to it. And she was like, it has to be Benny and the Jets. It has to be a song that people feel like they know, but do not know. Well, that's valid. So then... He admits that he cried at one of her favorite weddings. She had, like, asked about the, like, I don't know, like, the Peterson wedding or whatever it was. The Keller wedding. And she throws out the date of, like, his column. Yeah, she has obsessive knowledge about it. And I was gonna be like, that's completely unreasonable. But I do know, like, episode titles of TV shows or, like, issue numbers of comic books. So, like, if this is your thing, you might remember it. Great, sure. So, and he had pretended that he didn't remember any of it. And she's like, you wrote this. How do you forget? And then he says, yeah, I cried at that wedding. And then they go to his car and bang it out. Yep. In the rain, because it is still torrential. Correct. And that is the end of point three. And then they sleep in that car. They do. Do you want to know the real reason why I came here tonight? Because I knew this was going to be hard for you. And for the first time in a really long time, I wanted to be there for somebody. All right, I, I, I messed up. I did. I'm sorry. And I'm going to turn around. I'm going to walk away. And I'm going to vanish. You'll never see me again. I promise. But I want you to know that I think you deserve more than what you've settled for. So the next morning, they get up. They go to breakfast. She points out that she never does this. And they're they're sitting at the diner. I like when he's like, oh, you mentioned. Because apparently while they were having sex, every five minutes, she would stop and say, oh, I never do this. Yeah, yeah. Which I believe. Her yeah. insistence on being the responsible one. Oh, yeah. So To the point that, like, later on in the movie, when she is criticizing Tess for basing her relationship on lies, Tess doesn't argue that her relationship with George is based on lies, but she is like, oh, like, you have these adult relationships to base your advice on. Right. Because you get the sense that Jane doesn't do anything for herself. Exactly. And that's one of the points that Kevin has even said. Right, which is the idea in the original screenplay that... It's not about her getting a man. It's her coming to take ownership over her own life and her own choices. Yeah. But anyway. So they're at the diner and a guy recognizes them from Benny and the Jets. And they're like, oh, yeah, Yeah, that was us. We were really drunk. Then a couple minutes later, the waitress recognizes them. And Jane thinks it is also from Benny and the Jets. And in fact, she had read the article. On the cover of the style section. Yep. So it ran. Tons of photos of her in the different dresses. Yes. And even though Kevin had asked them to delay running it, it runs. So Jane is incredibly upset. She walks out. I'm not sure how she gets back because she leaves without Kevin and they're still somewhere upstate, I assume. She hitches a ride. I don't know. I guess. Can they run that without telling her or asking for a comment or anything like that? Um... I feel like it's a gray area. I feel like legally maybe, but journalistic ethics, they probably would have asked her to comment. Yeah. Except that like, it's weird because she was with him officially as part of an interview, as part of a story. So like they easily could argue that like the comments from her that they would have included that are her comments. That's true. So after this happens... Obviously, Tess is upset. This is not the article she was expecting. She has a great performance as Bridezilla. And yeah, Tess looks very bad in this article. Yes. And so this is when Jane decides she is going to finally stand up for herself. But she's also done with James Marston. Right. I will say, this is a much better premise for a fight than in a lot of rom-coms that we cover. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, this is legit. Like, you think about the fight in Hitch, which is just stupid. No, this is one where you would actually be pissed. And you could yeah. see this happening. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, to stand up for herself, Jane decides she is going to out Tess in front of everybody at the rehearsal dinner. And so she... But Tess 
already being like, Jane is unreliable, look at this article, has written the speech that she will allow Jane to give. Right. And Jane follows that strict, but uses the picture selections to out-test. So this includes showing that Tess doesn't really like animals the way she tells George she does. When she talks about her interest in foreign affairs, it's Tess draped over these Italian men. The key picture, though, is Tess gorging out on barbecue while wearing her engagement ring after she had told George that she's a vegetarian. So this is wild. Even Judy Greer is like, this was maybe too much. Yeah, she does a whole little speech about how I'm not very moral, but I think this is wrong. So it's got to be bad. Yeah. So the wedding gets canceled. Jane and Tess are obviously not speaking and Jane leaves the rehearsal. And this is where you see that Kevin had been there and he comes out and he tells Jane that he had never really wanted to be there for anybody, but he wanted to be there that night for her because he knew it would be hard for her, which is really sweet. Yeah. And he bought her a Blackberry. He bought her a Blackberry, so she no longer had to use her old-fashioned Filofax, which was also very sweet of him. And she's, like, still not engaging. Right. So finally, he makes her at least take the Blackberry just kind of, like, as a peace offering. She takes it. He leaves. He gets the promotion at work that he wanted because his article, although it's not what she wanted, was such a hit with everybody else. He's going to get to write the kind of stories he wants to. Yeah. So then... We just kind of see a lot of fallout from that, where Jane and Tess are not speaking. They end up working it out. They talk about the fact that growing up, they each kind of wanted the life that the other one had. All right. Yeah, I think that this is the stuff that Aline Brosh McKenna was most interested in. The, like, sister relationship and Jane being able to take ownership over her own life. I think the movie goes too far in terms of making Tess really reprehensible to be able to redeem that in this, like, sister-sister heart-to-heart at the end of the movie, which I think the movie kind of thinks it has pulled off. Yeah. yeah, it's just, they pushed her too far. She didn't have to be racist. Yeah. Right. It's really, like, if they had cut that line, I would have believed the turnaround more. Tess is just so specifically awful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And cutting up the wedding dress and getting yeah. the venue when she knew that these meant a lot to Jane. And she had criticized them already. She was like, oh, this was also old fashioned. Right. And then she turns around and does it. So like Tess is really crappy and we're like, I just wanted to be you. It's like, fine, but you didn't have to be such a jerk about it. Right. So I just don't think the movie quite pulls it together there. No. No. Tess can't redeem herself like that. No. So that's point number five. So now we're at point number five. Kevin, I've been waiting my whole life for the right guy to come along, and then you showed up, and you were nothing like the man I imagined. You're cynical and cranky and impossible. But the truth is, fighting with you is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I think there's a very good chance that I'm falling in love with you. So Jane is at her office because George had called her and was like, oh, I guess I did need you to find me a date for this event. So she agrees, she dresses up, and then he makes a comment about how she never says no. And that is when Jane is just like, now you're I'm not wrong, no. but darn you. No more. You will Forget no longer. This. Yeah. So she quits her job. She does not attend the ball or whatever, the benefit with George. And instead, she goes to they Kevin's. They do kiss. They do kiss, and they both decide that it is. Not good. That's not how it should feel. And there's no fireworks, no sparks, no connection. No foot pop. No foot pop. And that's how you know it's not real. So then she gets a phone call and her ringtone is Benny and the Jets. Which On her is new Blackberry. her song with Kevin. And she runs to find him. She goes to his office. He is not there. He's covering <laughs> Benny his- and the Jets is their song. Yes. They like, bonded over it at the bar. Okay. Why else would he have said it as her ringtone? As a joke. It's their song. Okay. That song led them to make out for the first time. 
Sure. It's their song. Okay. So she finds out that he is covering his very last wedding. So she runs to go find him. And it's it's a boat wedding, which is kind of cool. She leaps unrealistically over the moving little drawbridge, makes it on the boat. So I was watching this. And they shoot it well, so, like, at first it looks unrealistic, and then they kind of cut to the side, and it was maybe, like, one or two feet. Yeah. Where it really, she barely needed to leap that much, which I thought was they a pretty funny touch. moved the drawbridge, yeah. So, the bride immediately recognizes her. Once From she's the on article. The boat. From the article, and... She's like, what are you doing here? And she goes, well, there's this guy. And then the bride is like, okay, you're getting up on stage. And if he's here, you're going to talk to him in front of all of us. She even gets a follow spot. So now Kevin is standing under a spotlight and Jane starts saying that she has fallen in love with him. She walks over to Kevin and this is... When we talk about Fiona repeating scenes just to watch them over and over again, because... A thing you would do when we were growing up, we would see a scene and Fiona would rewind it back to watch, like, a line delivery over and over again. And this is one of them. When Kevin says, get over here. I do not remember that. Oh, you don't? Oh, because I definitely remember that one. Maybe that was a private one. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) She walks over, they kiss, and then you flash forward to their wedding. So, speaking of all this... There are two major ways that this movie subverts rom-com tropes, which we know is something Aileen Brush McKenna likes to do. One is that we have this dramatic gesture, which has been a big part of rom-coms going back to the end of When Harry Met Sally. In this one, it's the woman who does the big dramatic gesture. She runs to the boat, leaps on, gives the speech. So that's a little unusual. The second way that this movie subverts rom-com tropes is it's the man who works in media. Oh my god! I didn't even think about that! What is her job? What is their company? I believe she works for a, a company that produces mountains. <laughs> is that what they do? It's basically... Is he an two, influencer? Two years later, it would have been some vague tech startup about the environment. But in 2007, I have no idea what it would be. I'm I think not they sure. they build mountains. Yeah. They talk about the pictures a lot. And he's like, oh, those pictures are too corporate. I'm assuming that after this, she opens the Always a Bridesmaid wedding planning service with uh, that article as her main uh, she advertising. She do a great job as a wedding planner. Speaking of these articles, at the very end of the movie, going into the credits, it is a newspaper article covering... Jane's wedding to Kevin. And we know at this point that Bleak Pancholi is now on the wedding beat. He got Kevin's job. And we zoom in on the article, and it's like the wedding, whatever the headline is, and it's just by Trent. So Malik Pancholi has no last name. He's already so famous, he's going by a mononym. It's Trent in the commitments world. He's not a good guy in this movie. Anyway, uh, they get married. (laughs) Okay. And all 27 slash 29 women are her bridesmaids. Yeah, like wearing their. Bridesmaid dress. They Fully chosen. 25% of the guests at this wedding are Jane's bridesmaids. Yeah. And then Pedro and George. Yeah. All right, guys. We've already talked about where it loses some believability points. Do you think this movie is believable? I, like, genuinely think Kevin is too obnoxious at the beginning. But he's got that face. I think he's a little bit much at the beginning. But I don't think that the situation is completely unbelievable. Do you go out with a man who your first interaction with him is... I liked your thong. Oh, no. Oh, I forgot about that I forgot about that. See? That's the thing. It's his face. You'll forget it. (laughs) I had already forgiven him. The other thing is, when she finally breaks down and wants to go out for a drink with him, in my head, it was clearly a, she 
just wanted to hook up with a hot guy. Oh, that's sure. And so that's I'm what gets them that. together on the first date, and that's what gets them talking more broadly, and that leads to niceness, etc. I don't think it's our most believable. I don't think it's our least believable. So There's chemistry week, between them. That's oh, true. Absolutely. They do have good chemistry. So every week, we rate the believability of a romance on a 10-point scale, where zero is we believe none of it, 10 is we believe all of it. Fiona, as our guest, where would you rate the romance of 27 Dresses? I think I'm going to give it a six. That's what I was going to say, That is too. exactly what I was thinking. Oh, my gosh! Oh, this is the first time we've all been on the same page, I think. Uh, that's We n- were brought together by James Marston. With no, like, where we all were on the exact same number. Yeah. Right. All right. Do you guys think that Jane or Kevin is dateable? Um, I believe that Jane goes through a lot of growth in the interim between these. The, so you think... The movie ended the one year later. You think the ending Jane. I like to think that the ending Jane is there. I would agree. Me too. I think that Kevin, aside from his thong comment... And the tearing out the week of the thing. No, I remember I was going to forgive that. Okay. Kevin needs to just be written in 2019 and then he's dateable. Yes. <laughs> but also it's James Marsden, so that really helps. So then... If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? A character, not an actor. Kevin. Judy Greer. Oh, that is a good choice. I don't know her name. She is she, an alcoholic. She though. is playing Judy Greer in this movie, and it would be very fun to just drink and say mean things with her. I think I will date Jane and Tess's dad. Oh, a hey, nice man. Hal? Hal. Who owns a hardware store and makes pancakes regularly. <laughs> That's a pretty good deal. Single father. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah, but like adult kids, so I don't have to raise them. Yeah. True. Do you guys think that Jane and Kevin stay together? I do. Yes. I do too. Even though if Jane were to get divorced, she could have another wedding. True. And she does like weddings. That no, is no, true. remember, she's going to become a wedding planner. So actually, in 2018, EW had that 10 year reunion, and you can find the video on YouTube of Heigl pitching her idea for a sequel, which she said she has talked to Anne Fletcher about, which is Jane and Kevin are still together. Jane has transitioned from being everyone's bridesmaid to being everyone's godmother and her need to like plan stuff. She's now like planning all the crap around like having a baby, like showers and stuff like that. And the conflict is because at the same time, Jane and Kevin are struggling to conceive. Hey, that's kind of a clever idea. Yeah, it's not yeah, a bad idea. I like that. So we'll see. Alien Brosh McKenna has said that she's working on a TV adaptation but has not found a home for it. So people involved still kind of want to make this a thing. Should one of those things be a stage musical? I don't think so. I don't think so. No. Although it would be fun to see them do like the dress switches on stage. Oh, that could be cool. So I think that about does it for this movie. Yeah. Fiona, I'm glad that we got you on here to talk about this one. So happy to be here. Next week, we'll be discussing an Australian drag queen comedy called The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Now, I was very confused about what this movie was. recorded the episode in advance, so there are no jokes to be made there, right, William? Correct. Uh, until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe! Fiona, you're an expert on 27 Dresses. Mm-hmm. What is the best piece of dating advice in this movie? Tear a page out of their calendar. Don't do that! <laughs> No, it worked for him. It's bad. It worked. Fine. Instead of tearing a page out, just pencil your name in every week. That's kind of a good idea, especially the pencil part. <laughs> what, so it can be erased? Yeah, I gotta use my calendar. Sounds like you don't like spontaneity. I like my calendar. My advice, 
Don't be afraid to get physical when you're catching the bouquet at a wedding. Because that's what initially brings Kevin and Jane together. My advice is write a love song for a sandwich, and then you'll have the only romance you need. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.